Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. This week, my guest is Alex Naumides, co-founder and CEO of Mindset Health a company building mobile hypnotherapy programs to help people with chronic conditions manage and improve their health without drugs or diet. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thanks for having me, Elaine. So Alex, this is definitely not a category a lot of people know a lot about. So I'd love to hear your backstory about how you became interested in both chronic disease as well as hypnotherapy. Yeah, sure. So we originally came across hypnosis after we, so me and my co-founder, my brother, Chris, we, after we killed our previous startup, Covet. So that was a peer-to-peer dress rental app. It wasn't the best fit for two brothers, but we taught ourselves to code. It helped upskill us in, in startups. And after we killed it, we were halfway through a university accelerator program and like feeling all this pressure and stress. And it got us thinking around mental health and started doing research into various different like solutions for that. And came across hypnosis on a podcast. I, I can't remember what it was called. And they were talking about there was actually a surprising amount of evidence behind hypnosis as a, an adjunct and an amplifier of, like, say, CBT or other therapies. And so initially, our thought was, okay, this is something. There's a lot of evidence. Um, it's similar to meditation. Could we do what Headspace and Calm had done with meditation of bring something that was once like a woohoo science for hippies ten years ago and bring it to a to the mainstream and so that was sort of the initial thought with like launching our our namesake mindset which is for mental health um but over over the period we we realized where it's truly helpful and where the, a lot of the evidence lays is is some in depression and more specific uh specific verticals but in say ibs and in menopause and it sort of came across that through so i have celiac disease so a chronic gut health condition um I, during the time when I was getting diagnosed with that, I, I thought I had IBS and it, like hypnotherapy had come up as one of those options that was available. And so what we did was, oh, could we bring that in as one of the 10 programs in our headspace like um, hypnosis app? And it took off and it was like by far ended up being like a huge uh, portion of our users and they were seeing great results and it, like adhering amazingly. So we're like, okay, cool. Let's double down on this and split it off into its own product, which is Nerva. Can you define for us a little bit of the difference between what is hypnotherapy and how does that work? What is hypnosis versus what is more meditation and mindfulness? Yeah, for sure. So hypnosis isn't a therapy itself. It's it's a something that a, a process of becoming focused and absorbed that leads to heightened suggestibility. And that that's essentially just your an increased ability to learn and like understand new things. And so once you couple that with say CBT or guided imagery or other therapeutic techniques, it's been shown to improve the outcomes of that. Um, and it's pretty self-explanatory be, being focused and more willing to like understand and believe things makes CBT work better or makes the ability to become engrossed in a guided imagery um, more fulfilling. And so 
that's sort of the, the difference between hypnosis and hypnotherapy. It's just hypnosis plus therapy. Um, the, the difference between guided meditation is it's much more goal orientated and it's using therapeutic techniques like CBT and it's designed by a doctor. But from a the actual process, it does feel quite similar. You're listening to a relaxing voice who's guiding you to become more focused and relaxed and progressive muscle relaxation is very similar to say a body scan in, in headspace. And so from a user perspective, it can feel quite similar. It's the outcomes and the things you might do on the tail end of the session. That is the difference. Interesting. I knew, I know I'd seen some research around in athletics, especially elite athletics of people doing a lot of these same techniques of using hypnosis, hypnotherapy to try to get athletes into that flow state and that state of being ready for performance. Has there been any research on that that's kind of influenced how some of the medically approach, uh, medical fields have approached this as well? There's been a limited amount of evidence in actually that. It's, it's a very common use of that. And a lot of those self-hypnosis, like mindset reframing. And, um, but a lot of the evidence has been much more in those like therapeutic angles. Um, but it's definitely been something that helps, helps push it more to the mainstream when you hear that professional sports teams have like a, like a psychotherapist on staff that uses like hypnosis and hypnotic techniques to help you enter that sort of like flow, which a flow state is a great example of like focused and absorbed um, on a single like task or a single thought is very, very similar. Interesting. And, you know, how does the mind and body actually work in that? When I think about IBS or, you know, irritable, irritable bowel syndrome, I think of it as being very physical and manifesting itself in physical symptoms and, you know, pain and things like that. How does the mind actually work to control some of the physical nature of that, of the illness? Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a great question. So for something like irritable bowel syndrome, um, it's what's called a, a functional condition where there is no damage occurring actually to the gut. It's just a miscommunication between the gut and the brain. There's something wrong with how it functions. And so with 70%, around 70% of people with IBS, they have what's called visceral hypersensitivity, which means that because of this miscommunication, the nerves in their gut are overly sensitive to stimuli. And so whether that's um, eating certain types of food or stresses like anxiety and depression, those all can like lead to like false alarms coming from your gut saying something is wrong and telling the brain to cause symptoms. And so for the, one of the, the main dietary approaches to managing IBS is called low FODMAP. And that is essentially like eating less of those foods that can trigger the, that uh, false alarm, those signals going to the brain. What hypnotherapy does is essentially manages from the top down. And so you're getting these false signals, these, these false alarms. Can you change how the brain interprets and regulates those signals? And so essentially increasing the level that the threshold of awareness requiring symptoms to occur and reducing and what we've seen is in a in a 2016 study it found that hypnotherapy could actually improve the those symptoms those physical symptoms of IBS by the same amount as that gold standard elimination diet but without requiring you to actually change anything that like you want to like change what you eat and so for similar conditions say like pain management pain management it's very similar right where there's these signals coming from your body that's not actually helpful. Like pain is actually a very helpful thing when you're in danger or there's something really happening. But for a chronic condition where the pain is just a false alarm, it's managing it from the managing the interpretation and the regulation of those signals. 
And is part of what the hypnotherapy doing is training you to know how to get in a certain mindset when a situation arises that could trigger one of those physical symptoms? Is it meant to be something that you do so that you can shift gears in the moment? Or is it something that's meant to eliminate this all future, you know, need need to even deal with it? So it does, it sort of does both in, in the same process where if you teach like your brain or yourself to respond in a certain way when a trigger occurs or when uh, when a like stimuli you're eating the wrong food, you respond automatically using those techniques. And so it's it's doing that like what, what they've seen in that study that I've mentioned. It at a six month follow up, those symptoms were still reduced, um, and so they were able to maintain that symptom reduction long term. But it's not clear whether that's because they were actively putting consciously putting those things into practice or they've sort of subconsciously unconsciously what do you want to call it like retrained those those mechanisms to do that automatically without a conscious like requirement to do so interesting can you walk so you mentioned you started with ibs and your first product is called nerva can you walk us through a little bit of what does the product actually look like how does a user engage with it how did you develop the protocols i'm really interested to dig in under the hood a bit yeah, happy to. So it's essentially it the it's two parts: the core six week gut gut directed hypnotherapy program, and then ongoing maintenance. And so how we work, we set up Nerva to start with is we found the research of that 2016 study that compared hypnosis or gut directed hypnotherapy to the low fodmap diet, and essentially worked with her to take the the approach she used in that study and deliver it through a mobile app. Um, and the way that looks is. It can be thought of similar to, um, say, a guided meditation app, but very structured. And so it's six weeks of daily tasks. One of those will be listening to an audio recording of a hypnotherapy session. Um, then it will be psychoeducation. So in similar to pain management, like it, like educating people on how IBS occurs and how that works and the interaction between the gut and the brain always been shown to help actually manage those symptoms. And then there'll be throughout like other techniques such as like breathing exercises that help you like um, turn off or regulate the, the nervous system. Oh, not turn off, regulate the nervous system. Um, and so from a user's perspective, you, you come in every day, you listen to your session. It brings you into a state of focused attention and absorption, um, largely through progressive re- muscle relaxation. And then once you're in that state of focused and relaxed attention, you then go through a guided um, visualization so for like regulating um like diarrhea it's about like you're going to the river and you can control the flow and if it's going too fast you can slow it down and all of those sort of guided imagery that helps you to learn how to re- self-regulate those symptoms and how customized or personalized is it based off of individuals and their symptoms versus for ibs is it something that's pretty you know, categorically applicable to anybody dealing with that chronic condition? So right now it's very like categorically applicable. There is some percentage of people um, in the study and and in our app as well that it just doesn't work with. Um, It's not entirely sure because the same percentage of people that hypnotherapy didn't work with in the study was the same percentage of people that the low FODMAP diet didn't work with. And so it's Mm. potentially there's this like a commonality of visceral hypersensitivity or something like that, that, that means it won't work. Um, for There is a definitely a, a potential, and if you go in person, you will see much more personalization around what, what symptoms matter to you. 
Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it will be more effective, but it'll be more enjoyable because hearing about symptoms, like if you're IBSC, so there's different types of IBS, like your constipation dominant or your diarrhea dominant or your mixed. Um, hearing about con- symptoms you don't have, especially in a gut-brain like interaction, it's it's not a great experience. And so there's a lot of opportunity to do that. But it's not from the research, it's not necessarily clear that personalizing it will improve it. Interesting. And is a solution like Nerva meant to completely replace any kind of drugs or other type of protocols that a healthcare professional is providing, or is it meant to supplement? So it's definitely meant to supplement and complement the work people are doing. So a lot of people have tried different dietary approaches and found it difficult to stick with. And so it helps them learn to self-manage their conditions. So either that's with the help of a um, healthcare practitioner alongside the dietary approach to say if they've got uh, food triggers managed, but they want help with their psychological triggers, or it's just them working on themselves to learn these self-management techniques. It's definitely not a cure um, and it, it, it is like ongoing management, but it, like you said earlier, it's sort of teaching yourself how to manage it automatically and the skills to, that can help you do that. Is since it is being used as a treatment for conditions, is a solution like this regulated, or is it more treated like a mindfulness app, like a medit- like a calm or a headspace? So there's it. It's sort of treated similar to that, um, and there's there is carve outs in the FDA in the TGA in Australia for these specific conditions. So the self management of chronic low risk chronic health conditions, or similar, or in the same space for like a headspace or a calm, where it's like guided um, guided sessions where they can pick and choose. And so there is carve-out, so it's not, not regulated um, right now, but there is a potential where for other conditions where it does make sense, like say if you're, like if you're dealing with schizophrenia, where there is a higher risk for um, patients and for participants that you would want it to be regulated. Mm. You mentioned that this is applicable in quite a few other areas. So after IBS, what other areas do you plan on tackling? And I guess what's led you down those paths of those different, different areas? Yeah, so we're looking at where the research is the strongest and where there's the biggest need. Um, and so there's a, like various levels of quality of evidence for where hypnosis can help. Um, but where for us, the next steps we want to be looking into is um, menopausal hot flushes. So that's, the, that's our next program that we're looking to build. And that's really like a big opportunity because eight out of 10 women will like at some point get hot flushes and the average length is two to five to two to five years of suffering from like intense bouts of temperature changes that can disrupt you at work, um, disrupt you sleeping. It can really have a, like a detrimental impact. Um, and it's just a really underserved market where there isn't a whole lot of startups in the space and there isn't a whole lot of treatments in the, the space either. So if you're going through menopause, really the primary way you're going to manage your symptoms is through uh, hormonal placement therapy and there's a whole load of side effects. There's some evidence showing it can increase cancer risk, certain types of cancer. So it's not a great solution. And so what we're sort of looking for is where is there a strong strong evidence or at least strong initial evidence that hypnosis can help? And then where is there an opportunity to help like an underserved market? Um, and so menopause is one of those. Depression is another where um, our one of our researchers um, or our experts, Dr. Michael Yapko, is a world-leading depression expert. Um, and a lot of the times antidepressants are used in not the the most correct way and not for the right patients and so looking for a non-pharmacological 
solution for that market is is really important. Um, there's some around like sleep disturbances, so there, there's some good treatments for that, but it's still a huge problem. And I know you've had like eight eight sleep on this on this podcast as well. Like it's not a it's a it, reading why you sleep. It's a terrible uh, like condition to have when you're insomniac or disrupting your sleep and just affecting every part of your day. Well, I love that you're tackling menopause next because it's always boggled my mind that 50% of the entire population will go through this. And it's such an under-investigated and underserved category. And to your point, you know, when people take hormone replacement, there's a whole host of horrible side effects that just replace the other side effects. Mm. So it seems like a definite imperfect solution. So I think that's a great, great category as well as obviously depression. I think the stat right now is something like 35% of people, at least in the US, suffer or on some kind of antidepressant, which is just mind boggling. So lots of opportunity to do non drug related solutions to these problems. Yeah. And I think like, there's a big push in, in like pain management as well, like whether you've seen the opioid crisis, there was a big push where yeah. drugs that can be very helpful, but there should be more opportunities to go non pharmacological routes when applicable. Um, and opioids is one way, antidepressants is another, there's hormone replacement therapy, which um, is, as you mentioned, a, lot, a whole host of side effects. So it's like, where can we help these people that um, where it, there is strong evidence and where they've just been underserved? And I, and I think it does lead to like from where like the lack of gender equality in VC means there's a bit less interest in these spaces, which means it just keeps coming down that, that like trickle down effect. This might be totally out in left field, but I've been following a lot of the research on uh, psychedelics and their effects on things like incurable depression and schizophrenia and some other conditions like that. And it seems like there potentially is a lot of overlap between the conditions that hypnosis can treat as well as some of these low-dose psychedelics. Have you found any of the research focusing, looking at both of them in conjunction or are those fields pretty far apart? Yeah, I from the top of my head, I haven't seen much uh, using like hypnosis and psychedelics together. It could be for a very interesting time. Like you become more focused and absorbed in your hallucinogenic trip. Like could be, make it better. Like in the same way we've seen with like hypnosis plus CBT makes CBT better. Like being absorbed and engrossed in something makes it better. Now I don't know if that's a great experience, but maybe it could be really cool. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking that potentially bookending an experience with some kind of psychedelic with hypnosis could make a lot of sense because it prepares you to be in the right state of mind for that experience. And then afterwards kind of helps potentially elongate the benefits. I don't know. I could be totally wrong on that one, but just interesting thought process. Yeah, that's something like you're talking about like post-hypnotic suggestions, right? Like like using suggestions while in the state, like, oh, moving forward, you're going to think this way. And it's sort of like long-term like effect of, of, of your behavior of how you think. So could 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 work really well. With some area we've been looking into as well is like, because obviously VR treatments is something that's like really come up recently. Um, but could you becoming more absorbed and engrossed in a VR experience make it more like engaging? So instead of for us, like we bookend like a guided guided imagery with hypnosis, could you bookend like a VR experience with hypnosis and make that more realistic and make you feel like it's more real? Um, and does what impact does that have? There's no research into that, but it's some cool areas. Like where, where does becoming absorbed and heightened suggestibility make it better? Interesting. Yeah, it's just adding more sensory inputs, which I could see being a more you know, immersive experience in general. Interesting. 
and, and you've and there, worked a lot. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say there's been some research coming out of Stanford around the, the areas of the brain that activate with hypnosis, and one of the there's like uh, one of the areas is involved in the the brain body connection. So, uh, like, how does that impact? Like, does that help with more physical conditions than say something that CBT alone can help? Where by amplifying that connection, you can help with more things like IBS or more physical things. And how does that then work with like VR and other experiences? We were actually leading exactly where I wanted to go in that you've spent a ton of time with some of the foremost researchers on a lot of this stuff. And so I'm just curious to get some of the more interesting tidbits or learnings that you've had working in conjunction with some of these researchers. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's interesting, like how much of a, in, in the space, there's like the, the, there's an argument around like state versus non-state in hypnosis. Like it's sort of like researchers, some researchers are saying that, oh, hypnosis is a discrete state. And it's like, oh, you can see it on like brain imagery and stuff like that versus some are non-state theorists where it's closer to like a CB cognitive behavioral, like change in perception and things like that. And I thought that was super interesting how like in within a, like a niche, like, uh, as you might say, like unsexy, but hopefully more sexy industry, um, that there's like these disputes over something that doesn't necessarily matter from a, like a clinical a clinician standpoint or a patient standpoint. It's not really important whether it is one or the other. It's like how you use it within a, like a, a treatment structure. Um, but I thought that was super interesting. Um, and then around like, yeah, as I mentioned, that, that brain scan study around showing that like this discrete areas of the brain that are activated while under hypnosis and then like what that means with um, how, what conditions it can help with and trying to understand more of what that process looks like. I found like su super fascinating and, and that's a great research article if anyone wants to read that. That sounds really interesting. Just even trying to figure out what the ideal protocol is based off of what in your brain is triggered by different types of uh, you know, hypnosis protocols. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like I, I don't remember the exact parts of the brain, but it was associated with like absorption, brain body connection and self-awareness. And so like if you lower your critical faculty, like that's the lack less self-awareness that you can be more open to receiving new things like and heightened brain body connections means you can like have potentially stronger effects on these like, like conditions like IBS um, and then absorption obviously become focused and absorbed in what the therapist is saying and like the CBT techniques or whatever it is you're using um, can help. Have you seen any difference either within your product or within any of these research studies of male versus female reception to hypnosis? Um, I think they had from our product, like it's different because IBS is predominantly female. So we, we see like 70% of our users are women. So it's hard to like change that from like, is it the condition or is it the, the approach? Um, I think there has been some evidence. I wouldn't know for sure in, in the research that, uh, yeah, I, I can't, couldn't say for sure. I think there has been some research in it, but I'm not exactly which side it leans. Um, suggestibility uh, is the main thing that people look into on that front. So essentially um, the state theorist thinks there is strong suggestibility, the non-state think there isn't. But when people talk about suggestibility, they, they think that 10% of people are lowly suggestible. So they can still be like, when taught something, they can still be brought into the state. It's just a lot harder. Um, and then on the flip side, another 10% of people are highly suggestible. And it's not sure if it's a, it's a normal bell curve or it's a little elongated at the end for like a really a larger portion of people who are highly suggestible. But they're the, the people, if, you, if you're imagining like a stage hypnotist who filter out people, 
they find the like by using lots of like techniques they find those highly suggestible people to bring up on stage so to like make it look like like a better stage presence um and then for the most of us there's the, the rest of us there's that middle like bell curve where moderately suggestible um i'm not sure if there's specific signifiers that say like whether they'll be in one or the other um but it's something that's more ongoing in the research now because it would if you could know who is more suggestible it changes what treatment approach you use I bet I would fall on the highly suggestible. I'm extremely gullible. People have always liked to screw with me my whole life because <laughs> I'll believe nearly anything, which is pretty funny. I also did not realize that IBS skewed so female. That's a really interesting data point there. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. There's not exactly sure why that's the case, um, but it definitely lends well for us going into menopause. We have a lot more experience like dealing <laughs> with a product in that area. Yes, and acquiring female users, totally. Exactly. Well, you know, Building a product with your brother is also more unique. So I'm curious to get your take on what it's been like building with, you know, direct family member. It's been fantastic. Like Chris and I obviously lived together for most of our lives, um, 25 years for me. Like we've, we've been able to build a lot of things over that time. So when we were 15, we were building like uh, tablet apps, which essentially ripped off web views of Facebook, selling them for a dollar. And we made like a few thousand dollars on the Play Store before we got um, banned for copyright infringement um but and so we, because we've had so many experiences and so many like we'd be fighting and not and traveling internationally for months like and like you know doing like bus about and like trips like that to europe and stuff we've been able to like work out really strong ways of working together and un- strong understanding of each other's strengths and weaknesses and so we don't really have like much conflicts and like the conflict that we do is easily managed um and we're so aligned with like the ideals and values and mission of the company like it's it's all the say the benefit of working like with your best friend or your like married your wife or whatever without the risk of like you getting divorced and like the the risks to the business of that so like i couldn't imagine a better like co-founding partner if that's thing we had i remember we had one investor that was against it and i think potentially there's a risk of like if you depending on your relationship with your sibling it could color how you view it um like I know some people have like pretty contemptuous relationships and that's not necessarily a great for starting a company, but in the same way you don't start a company with someone who you don't like, like where we started together because we do really like each other and um, want to be building stuff together. I mean, I personally think it's great. There's a saying in Silicon Valley land that most startups don't die by homicide, they die by suicide. Yeah. And most frequently that suicide is a founder breakup. And, you know, to your point, even if it's a married couple, you can, things happen, you can get divorced, but you can't get rid of your sibling. And so it's de-risked on that side that you can fight as you've done, I'm sure your whole childhood, and then you get over it and you move on and you know each other well enough. So I think it, I think it sounds very fun. Yeah, exactly. And like, we're we're at an interesting point where until very recently, we're living together as well. So it's like, we work together, then we go home and we live together and we play video games together and then we go back to work. So it's like a really constant thing, but it means you have these opportunities for ideation that like at random points, whether it's like we're playing Rocket League and you're like, oh, fuck, this sick idea. Like, this is awesome. Um, and then just like all, all of that. So it, it's been a great experience and look forward to the next 10 years of building this like a big company together. That's amazing. Well, we're about out of time, but Alex, I like to ask everyone the same final question, which is, is there a piece of advice you've been given in your personal or professional life that's really stuck with you and it's kind of words that you live by? Increase the surface area of luck to hit. 
like luck is a huge part of yes how you win and, and no one really talks about it enough but by doing more and iterating faster and like speaking to more people and just like expanding the surface area for luck to hit you have more opportunity for that to occur and so like just living my life through that it's like we we try to like be more like run our uh, company faster see meet new people even if like oh i see it's going out it's like no it's like go maybe we'll meet someone new and have a conversation you can't predict that will lead to all these things and you can't really do that by just like staying in a bubble and only doing this one thing I love that so much. I heard, I think this is true, but Jeff Bezos used to always ask in interviews, how lucky are you? And he wanted people that said they were extremely lucky because that means you put yourself in situations where luck can find you. Kind of like the proverb, fortune favors the bold. You have to be able to put yourself in situations where you can get lucky. So I, I love that. I think that's a fantastic, fantastic motto. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm glad that me and Bezos are just equally as, as smart and strong together. <laughs> Absolutely. Big footsteps to follow in. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Really, really fascinating to learn about you and what you're building and just kind of the world of hypnosis applied to medicine. So thank you for joining us again. No worries. Thanks for having me, Elaine.